apparently millennials as a generation, which is a group of people who were born approximately uh, 1984 and after, um, uh, are tough to manage. And they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic, self-interested, unfocused, lazy. But entitled is the big one. Surprise, motherfucker. What's going on, everybody? Episode 9 of the Casual Millennials Podcast. Uh, it is just moi, Andrew Jakubitz, one of your co-hosts. Um, Eric, unfortunately, could not make it. He had an event in Racine from 5 to 7. Um, and this was the only time we could get on our esteemed guest schedule, who is a very busy man. We just got done talking about it. Uh, and without further ado, our guest tonight is Dave Mackinich, SVP of Marketing, Product Management, Strategy, Etc. 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 I could go on a long list at Pfizer. So, Dave, how's your night going? How are you? It's wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. So, appreciate you to uh, pronounce my last name correctly too. By the way, hey, I tried. I practiced on my way here, so that's good. I'm glad I got it right. Excellent. Um, and no, thank you for coming on. Uh, this is a small podcast, so we appreciate getting somebody like you on who has one of the best brains I hear around Pfizer. <laughs> think in many different ways. So, I'm excited to dive into it tonight. That's for sure. Sure. So. For the people who are listening who don't know who you are, um, give me the one to two minute spiel on kind of where you started and then yeah. how you ended up at Fiserv. Sure. Uh, started out, grew up in Ottawa, Canada. So I am not from uh, not from America, but... First don't, international don't guest. Hold, there you go. This is yeah. all of a sudden it's an international podcast. Uh, just very regular kind of upbringing. Went to college out in the Far East Coast. Started my career out in banking after I finished college uh, and very quickly decided that... Um, at least at the time that wasn't for me and, and I can, I can kind of bring that home later, but, uh, left that, did some management consulting and then spent a decade in, I think I had seven, seven jobs in nine years, all the way through to the executive ranks with a company called ADP, which is the big, uh, HR payroll technology firm, uh, in the U S and Canada and international, uh, worked all over the world, uh, great experience, that sort of thing. Um, and then I eschewed Fortune 500 life entirely and decided that I would never go back to Fortune 500. And I uh, worked for a couple of venture-backed startups. So I ran as chief revenue officer for um, a marketing tech company and then true AI type company for a couple of years in Montreal, Canada. And then I left that uh, when we sold it. And I went to another company. It was VC-backed startup in financial technology. And uh, a couple of things happened. And that's how I ended up at Fiserv um, with some colleagues that I used to work with back in the day at ADP. Um, and when they presented the problem statement that faces this company and all the things that they wanted to do and, you know, how would that fit strategically and all this other stuff, I got pretty excited and that's how I ended up here. So I've been here for 17 months, I think, 16, 17 months. Nice. Yeah. Um, so let's get, well, let's just bring this way back as you said you would. Why was banking for you? Two uh, suit and tie for you? A couple of startups? No, no there was, there was that. Uh, <laughs> and so this is a true story. So it's 2000, 2000, yeah, it's 2000. And we were, I worked for CIBC, which is a big global bank, top 20 bank, I think, top 30 bank in the world. Um, and we were doing a branch, sort of branch transformation initiative and a rebrand and a bunch of other things. And we brought in uh, new teller systems and we brought in new systems for guys like me. I ran, I was actually branch manager, I think at the time, but I was a personal banker for a long time and loan officer or whatever. And someone sent me a file with a PowerPoint attachment on it in 2000. And I couldn't open it because our we weren't running Windows 93, I guess it was, or 95, whichever one sort of was like the gen, 95. 95 is a general support for yeah. all the office suite and everything else like that. And this is in 2000. Oh, in 2000. Oh, and I thought to myself, well, that's curious. Um, and the bizarre part was I had to forward it to a friend of mine. He opened it for me. Um, and it wasn't work-related. But I had never seen a PowerPoint either. And I immediately thought to myself... I feel like maybe I'm not learning as many transferable skills as I'd like. Mm. And now in retrospect, the answer is because my employer wasn't thinking about technology as an enabler of my success the way they probably do today, by the way. So it's nothing disparaging at CIBC at all. Um, but the sort of paradigm that a lot of our smaller community bank clients are in, as an example, as Pfizer mm. is representative of this idea that the, when the sea changes in, in technology hit, we should be able to be reactive to the needs of the next generation and the needs of the digital generation in general. Sure. And, uh, and I felt really, I was like, I was, 
I was earned. I was going to be, I was going to go into investment banking. I was going to do all this other stuff and, and always had a passion for tech. And that, that moment sort of tipped the scales for me. And then like two days later, someone tried to rob the branch and I was like, okay, definitely out of here. <laughs> so those two things happen in rapid succession. Uh, and that's why I left and actually I got into management consulting in this tiny little um, competitive intelligence consulting firm. So this fascinating guy who was a, a major in the uh, Canadian forces and ran the UN, uh, intel- one of the UN intelligence missions in Bosnia during the breakup of the old Yugoslavia. Okay. I was peacekeeper there for a long time. Came back to Came back to civilian life and decided that there were practical applications for military intelligence in the corporate world. Sure. And there is a there was a burgeoning discipline called CI, which is pretty popular now, but at the time was sort of a growing thing, um, and that kind of coincided with the advent of Google and you know, for the most part, secondary research information online that's available for free and all sorts of other stuff. And so he felt like that was a good time. Started this little consulting firm. We ended up picking up a huge, bunch of huge like Fortune 500 brands as clients. Wow! And how I, big was the shop? Just you two? Uh, we were a dozen people, and then we got acquired by a technology firm in Helsinki. And they sort of took their their sort of platform tech and married it to the sort of strategic insights we were bringing to the table and all the project work we were doing for our clients and sure. sort of married that together. Uh, and it's still a very, very successful going concern in CI. And that was really great because you would like parachute into a situation as a young person and you'd have to learn very quickly, like an entire operating model, business model, strategy, and then do a bunch of research to come back with a punch counter punch kind of analysis on positioning, messaging, pricing. Um, we did a lot of wargaming, a lot of scenario analysis, a lot of if-then type stuff. Sure. Um, and we could do that with different access than if somebody from a competitive brand was asking the same questions that we were asking. So that was, that was a lot of fun, actually. Um, but after we got acquired by the Finnish technology firm, uh, a lot of the more fun kind of consulting work disappeared and was replaced by SaaS revenue. So I was one of the early people displaced by Automation and machine learning. Got it. Um, and that's how I ended up at ADP because I went and I started their competitive intelligence function. Oh, really? Um, so you yeah. started the whole division there? Well, I started that for their Canadian business okay. and then ended up uh, leaving the Canadian business, went and ran marketing and strategy for international for a global platform for a couple of years, came back to Canada, uh, ran product management, marketing, then went back to the U.S. business and ran marketing for their uh, international division and their U.S. enterprise business. Okay. Before I ended up leaving. That's interesting. Um, so talk me through, and this might be something I, I kind of want to just get some more insight on. And then I have a couple other questions on this, kind of what we're talking about. But So you go from CI to marketing. Now, you're just ta- basically, and we're not thinking about marketing and that I'm going to create an ad, right? How do you explain marketing at your level that you're trying to do? Is it, you know, can you just, why don't you just take that right there? Like, how no, do you explain easy. marketing? It's right? easy. There's no difference between marketing and business strategy. So that I think is interesting and um, for me because I think people who are going to college, people who are in high school especially, think of marketing as just like advertising. Yep. And I think that's it's interesting and, and for me refreshing and different to hear that because I never learned that even when I was in college. I took one marketing class and all we talked about was basically who you're marketing towards. And that yeah. was, I think that's all I can remember from it, to be completely honest yeah. with you. <laughs> no, I mean, like to me, and again, this is... There's a reason why they teach it like at a four-year college and it's four years worth of classwork because it's not, it doesn't, can't boil it down to one thing. Sure. But to me, marketing really is business strategy. Business strategy, my, my role here, for instance, mm-hmm. is to figure out ways to create sustainable competitive advantage. Okay. Like that's my job. Got it. Uh, marketing's job is to create sustainable competitive advantage. In many cases, marketing, even more so, their responsibility is to, to do that with or without all of the dots dot, or the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And create a vision and a brand and all these other things that go along with it mm-hmm. to create competitive advantage for the company. Um, there are different flavors based on the company's goals, aspirations, the markets they play in, what their winning aspiration is, like all those types of things. And the marketer has to figure out where the gaps are that they can skate their competitive advantage into. Um, so if you're a big Sun Tzu fan, you attack where your enemy is weak and you retreat where they're strong. And so that's, that's part of that as well. I guess we read the art of war and you'll know everything. That's right. You read the art of war, you read von Clausewitz and all sorts of other stuff. And so I, and I believe like, you know, business is a combination of war and sport and in, in at least philosophically. Yes. Certainly not practically. Right. Um, but in, in sort of an esoteric fashion. Mm-hmm. And so like that's marketing's job. But if, for instance, when I work for a startup, 
And we're a high growth startup, 99.9% online digital customer acquisition. The way I create competitive advantage is to create operating leverage for my company. So every time for two startups in a row, one of my tricks is I go in there and the first thing I do is raise the price. So reposition, repivot into our strength, raise the price. Raising the price gives me operating leverage and creates gap between cost to acquire and lifetime value of a customer. And then I can make better decisions about where I want to play based on the fact that I now have additional operating leverage. Do you think going into those roles, especially as a CRO, and I worked at a startup before I came here. Okay. Um, that was a SaaS company as well. Um, and our CRO actually did the opposite and basically we competed on price, unfortunately. Yep. Um, with- that is a strategic option, right? Michael Porter, right? Go back to school. Yeah. Cost leader. That's but- one of the one of the options, although he later said that's not a good idea. <laughs> so you go to your point. It's, it's a strategy. You're right. It is a strategy. Um, whether it's a good one or not is debatable. But uh, do you think you were able to really um, grasp that and take that strategy mode because of the finance background that you had, whether it was within banking and kind of yep. having that thought mentality of like an investment banker? I have no finance background whatsoever. I had an undergraduate well, degree in American history. Oh, that's right. I did see that today. See, and this is and this is all leading towards why I like yeah. this podcast and actually why I started it, right? To give people, my young adults, um, college kids, like it doesn't always matter what you major in. It doesn't matter if you got a double major, you got a master's degree, you can take your career in any way you want. Yeah. How does someone go from a history major? How do you sell yourself? Like what what are your selling points? Is it really just I'm a quick learner, I can take anything, or do you yeah. just raise your hand and start doing it? Well I think it's I think it's two things. The first is you have to find opportunities where they don't care about pedigree so much. Right? Like okay. what school you went to, did they go to a big school or a small school? Did they go to a good school or a bad school? Did they do yeah. Like none of that necessarily matters because sure. there are lots of people that went to great schools that aren't that great and lots of people that went to not very great schools that are amazing. And mm-hmm. there's lots of research been done on top performing CEOs and the fact that they don't go to the Ivy League colleges as much and everything else. But to me, it was really less about that and it's more about mindset. Okay. Um, and the things that sort of bring to the table that I, when I coach people on that are thinking about like kind of moving their career forward. Mm-hmm. Um, is the first is just understand the motivations of the business and how they make money, right? You don't need a finance degree to do that, right? right? Every business has five to seven key levers. Just understand how they get pulled and how they inter- what the interplay is between the levers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is just have a genuine curiosity for everything, which you can learn whether you take a geography degree, uh, an art history degree, a finance degree. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you're, if you're genuinely curious about things, mm-hmm. you never really lose that passion for improving your your yourself and your your learning, yeah. then you can can really accomplish anything. Um, and those those two things combined with probably the most important thing for me at least, which is a like a fairly dogged uh, work ethic, um, and the idea that you know what, if I walk into a room and maybe or into a situation, maybe I'm not the smartest person there, or I don't have the best degree, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to do 16 hours for every 14 they put in, then over time I'll make up the gap, no problem. Right. Sure. And that, that sort of that, that attitude, whether you actually do the 16 hours or not, like mm-hmm. the attitude is the thing that matters and the ability to say, like, I'm not going to be outworked at the end of the day. At a minimum, I'm not going to be outworked. Right. Because it's the one thing that you can control going yep. into that situation. That's how you remember that. That's right. Um, so let's let's just stick on this topic for a second here. Let's say your advice person three to five years into their career maybe realizes, hey, I'm not in the right spot where I want to be, but I've tried this over here, whatever it may be. How does one transition from there? And let's say yep. in the same company and potentially outside the same company. Okay. In, in the same company, I think the key is there is to, is to search for sponsors and mentors yeah. and understand that typically you're, a mentor is not a sponsor. Okay. Elaborate um, on that, please. So sponsors are people that can help your career. Mm-hmm. Mentors are people that are going to help you get better. Okay. Um, people, in my opinion, they often mistake those two things and they often conflate one for the other or believe that they're the same. Um, mentors are people that, that can sit you down and, and good mentors will have a program and walk you through, like, show me what you're working on today, where you're having problems, where do you feel like you're strong, where do you feel like you're weak? And as you learn that, they will assign you homework to go and work on your weaknesses or, sh- or sharpen yourself or all your strengths. Sure. Um, in many cases, you want to find a mentor that's not in your line of business. Um, but you don't necessarily need to look for people that are immediately going to help you get the next job. That's what sponsors are for. The benefit of the mentor is a mentor can have a a significant influence on sponsors. But usually your sponsor is going to be somebody who understands your work product at a detailed level. And so, you know, your boss can be a sponsor. And in some companies, um, 
the size of the business really matters and the roles that you have oftentimes matters. And so, you know, your, your boss just may not be able to help your career that much because, you know, you're a certain place in an org chart or you're in a small company or whatever, mm -hmm. and your mentor is going to be able to give you better options. And that's the other important thing is maybe your mentor doesn't even work in that company to begin with. Right. Really does right. depend on the situation. Sure. Um, and then the other thing is like the, the tricky part is if it's three years, if it's three years, is that too long? Is it not too long? You know, there's lots of talk about whether we're patient enough with our time and, you know, and then organizationally, the culture will either value advancing people quickly or they won't, or, you know, they have a series of criteria that they think that people should meet. And so sometimes it's, there's all those combinations of things you have to be cognizant of. Sure. And then lastly, it's sometimes it's a math problem. Okay. Like there can only be one VP. So you have five people that want to be VP and there's only one VP role. Sometimes it's a math problem. Yep. Right. And mm -hmm. so you have to make those decisions or at least be cognizant of those things. Right. Um, but it does, it really does depend on your situation and your employer. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say with certainty, but I just like sponsor mentor kind of thing. Like I, I really do believe that that's important. I think that's great advice. Um, so let's stick on this concept of being cognizant of the time. So, cause you said something, uh, and I think you said it was in in ADP it's seven jobs in nine years, right? Yeah. Okay. Seven jobs in nine years. What is that like about a little over a year in a job? Yeah. It's like a year and a bit in a job. I guess. Okay. Yeah. So some, and this is a kind of a reoccurring theme because uh, one stereotype of my generation is considered to be job hopping. Yep. Now, whether that means from company to company, job to job inside those companies, I'm not necessarily sure. It depends on probably who is using that term and defining it. Yep. But um, what do you say to that? Because seven jobs in nine years could be seen as that. Yep. Um, and then how do you kind of spin that? And as a younger person, sorry to layer on top, yep. how do you make those decisions of if, if it is the right time to switch jobs? Yeah. So, okay. First thing is seven jobs, nine years. Three out of the seven, I think, were promotions. Okay. Right? So there was that. Um, but the second thing is, the only reason why I had the opportunity I think I had was, A, there's some element of timing and luck and some other stuff like that. Sure. B, I had great sponsors and mentors. And so in, in one case, I was, in, um, I was an enterprise sales rep in Canadian business. And the guy that used to run enterprise sales for Canada went over to run, was the GM of the European business. And they were spinning up a new division focused on global Fortune 500s. And they needed a marketing person. And I came from a marketing background. And they were like, we should go get Dave. Right? So I didn't have anything to do with that job. They came and got me. Got it. Uh, and on a couple, and of the, again, of, of the, the roles that I had, uh, with some small exceptions, almost all of them were net new. Okay. So they created a new role and they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you want to do this thing? Um, well, that's and so, and nice for you. <laughs> well, I mean, timing is everything too. Yeah. So maybe I just got lucky. Uh, but the important part of that was they would have offered that job to lots of people okay. because a lot of them were dangerous jobs. So the new job is a dangerous job. Sure. It's like, Hey, do you want to go, do you want to walk point in front of the entire platoon? Yeah, that's a dangerous job. Yes. It is. Um, and what I've found is to answer your second question, mm -hmm. like never, and I, I can't remember exactly what the saying is, but it's reasonably popular, but don't be afraid to take risk. And the thing that do something that scares you all the time is actually really important. I've always found that if I looked at a, at a role where it was risky, but the, the reward, the upside was really interesting, then I'd probably skate towards that. Because okay. at the end of the day, I'm not walking point in front of a platoon. I'm sitting at a desk. Yes. And so, you know, it's not that physically, you know, it's, there's not a lot of risk there. Yeah. And so if I felt like I, it was a good decision and it gave me access to a lot more of a broader toolkit, then that's what I did. Sure. And so, you know, you, you can imagine working for... Um, even as an executive, so, you know, top executive, even within the construct of ADP, uh, our business unit was worth like 5% of total revenue or something like that, right? In the Canadian business until I went into the U.S. business again. And now all of a sudden we were worth a third. Wow. And so uh, the only way you do that is to, liber to liberate yourself from your current paradigm. You have to decide to take risk and move and do other things. Like there's no other, there's no other way to do it. Right. If you and by the way, just as an aside, if you sit around and wait for people to tap you on the shoulder, it's probably not going to happen. Which is why I do say I did get lucky a couple of times where I would think right place, right time kind of stuff. Sure. And I knew the right people, and I had, and I made the relationships and fostered those, both with sponsors and mentors.
which helps a lot. And then, yeah. well, and also just to pile up is your work ethic too. Like that stands out probably for most people. And that's kind of why your name popped into their head as well. Um, Maybe. Not, to, <laughs> not, not kissing your ass too either. So <laughs> trust me, I'm just, just probably. That was a long time ago anyway. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so yeah, but then to that last question there is like, you know, if I'm sitting in a job waiting to get tapped on the shoulder per se, or kind of being a little bit stagnant, when do you decide, like, maybe it is time to move? Because there is some risk in even just looking potentially yep. in the culture of your job could be. I don't know. I, I um, Situationally, obviously. Yeah. Obviously I, trying to generalize something that depends. Yeah. If you're, if you're like, fundamentally unhappy, mm-hmm. which luckily I've never really been in a, in a job. But if you're fundamentally unhappy, like, you should probably go do something else. Um, and the reason for that is also just, um, I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah. So I'm sitting on a plane yesterday or two days ago from Ann Arbor, from Detroit rather, to Milwaukee. Okay. And the guy beside me is a um, PhD psychologist, co-founder of an HR technology startup using data science and cognitive psychology to better screen candidates for fits for jobs. And the first thing I said to him was, well, how does your algorithm screen for motivation? Hmm. And he said, that's a very good question. We've been working on this problem for quite some time. <laughs> and the answer is like, how do you test on someone's like overall motivation? Like how, like the or to skate into the, the difficult stuff and then they give you discretionary effort because that's really how we measure motivation. Okay. Um, and the, and that, that answer is very difficult to, to determine, right? Like how, do you, like how do you figure that out? But if you're unhappy in your job, like your motivation is zero. Right. So that equation is actually quite simple. Yes. Right? And so if you feel like you're, if fundamentally you're unhappy, specifically because you, the, the work isn't challenging or... Or whatever, less about like, did I get promoted than I get promoted? But if you're really not fundamentally putting yourself in a position where you're doing your best work, mm-hmm. and I never, and I would never say put in a position because most people are at work voluntarily. And True. you, you, I mean, you chose to go there at the beginning. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, listen, we've all chosen to go somewhere and then be like, well, I don't like it here. Yep. But more importantly is you choose to stay. Like every day you show up, you're in charge of your own engagement and you're in charge of your own motivation. And so those are two factors that you can control as well. Mm-hmm. And if the circumstances of your work are such that you just can't get there, then you probably should look for another job. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that in the long run, your employer benefits from that, that, uh, that sort of ability to be. Um, self-aware as much as you do. But at the end of the day, I think, you, you know, you're trying to find things that give you the opportunity where you, when you're putting in discretionary effort over and above the expectation, it doesn't even feel like work because you enjoy it. Right? That's, yeah, that's 100% true. And I, and I think I found that coming from, uh, so I started in public accounting and then went yep. to a startup, right? So in public accounting, it's basically you're expected to work a large amount of hours. And I, did not like my job. I didn't like what I was doing. And I worked the minimum hours I could. I was like, I'm just getting my job done and get out of here. Yeah. And I ended up leaving, going to the start, I found myself working the same or more hours, but because I felt like I was driving something forward, I felt more engaged in my work and I had more fun. And that's just to your point there. Like, it's so true how much different it can be yeah. from when you dislike your job to when you actually enjoy what you're doing. Um, one question I want to talk about, and I wanted to get to you before the end of this, because yep. I think it's an interesting dynamic because you, I'm an individual contributor here at Fiserv, but now you're an SVP and with your specific skill set, focusing on strategy, thinking about those five to 10 year goals and how to pivot towards those. It's very interesting because your mind is all the way up there while I'm sitting down here, kind of walking the whole thing along, right? How does an individual contributor really get to understand the five to 10 year plan and understand their role in it? as well as understanding how you guys think about us as individual contributors and how we can help move everything yeah. along. Well, the first thing is your boss should be communicating the strategy of the business to you. <laughs> so if sure. you have a management communication challenge, we'll take that up out, offline. Um, In general, maybe. No, I, I, know, I know. But I think the, like, the aspirations and the goals of the business should be well known throughout the entire company. Yep. Um, and that just get you get a bit of a force multiplication effort if everybody understands which way to row the boat, mm-hmm. which is very helpful, especially for large companies, because it's just a big boat and it takes a long time to get moving and, and all that sort of thing. And a long um, time to turn them too. It's diff- in this difficult time to turn them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but understanding at an individual contributor level how you can maximize your RPMs, right, and then and assist in that is important too. Yep. And that's a dialogue, again, oftentimes with you and your manager or somebody else to understand kind of where you fit in the world and why what you're working on is important and all that sort of thing. And, sure. and asking those questions is really valuable. Okay. Uh, in many cases, because if, if you're... Your manager doesn't know the answer to that question, then they themselves will go and find out. And then it has a really positive effect. Sure. And, and that communication works really well. Um, but the second thing is, you know, some of the best ideas come from 
from people all over the company that are individual contributors or in some other part of the business because they're connected to a problem statement that we're trying to solve for. Okay. So, you know, our frontline service people, people talk to clients every day, very connected to the client experience. Mm -hmm. Do we have a mechanism to, to farm that feedback, analyze it, make decisions based on it, or at least incorporate that in our product strategy or solution strategy or market strategy, whatever. Okay. Um, and similarly, there, everybody in an individual contributor role has some sort of unique insight into the, into the experiences that the business is having, the market is providing, or the client is having. And just keeping you kind of your head up every once in a while to understand, does, is what I'm working on in context of the big picture strategy, like, can I contribute to that? Sure. Right? Um, and then again, if you lack clarity, like asking the question is really important. Um, because those of us are, you'll find that uh, as, you, as you grow in your career and you start to manage people and you start to get into leadership positions, that there's this weird gulf between, like, you know, people who know stuff at the grassroots and then the executive. And oftentimes... People will assume the executives are well informed about these things mm -hmm. and then never say anything. And then, you know, six months, a year goes by and they're like, why are these guys not doing this? Like, can they not see this? And they're yeah. like, no, your job is to tell me what's happening at that right. level. That's how this works. Exactly. I tell you what's going on over here. You tell me what's going on over there. And so the, fostering those dialogues is really important. And then you get the opportunity to contribute to. Um, and then it helps again with the context. And it's like a flywheel effect. This is a really positive feedback loop. Sure. That, that is a great answer. And I think um, will help a lot of people too, especially maybe going into companies, like they're just getting out of college, going into a company, because when you're brand spanking new and you've never worked really outside of maybe being an intern, it's really hard because you'll drown in new things, understanding yep. the whole job that you're just doing, much less the broader company, no matter how big of a, a job or corporation you're at. So I think that's an interesting way to think about that. Um, one thing that is interesting, and I want to get your thought on, because you've been a people manager for a while now, you've been in a lot of different positions. What are your thoughts on like important things for somebody who is beginning to take over a leadership position now? Now he's now they are managing people. Yeah. What are the first couple of things, any advice that you would give them, and things to look for? Well, it's tricky, right? Like the um, I think most new leaders get stricken with imposter syndrome. Okay, right? They're just like sit in their office and, like in the evenings and they look around and like, is anyone going to notice? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, like I shouldn't right? be here. <laughs> and it takes you a while to kind of work through the imposter syndrome because, and the thing, the thing I like to coach people on is now I'm giving away all my secrets here. I'm like, no one's going to ask me for any help. <laughs> well, is... now nobody will listen to us. I'll send, I'll send it around. Um, the the piece of advice I give people is give yourself the job first. Okay. Like number one, if you become a manager, or VP, it doesn't matter, but if you, if you feel like you're kind of like flailing and you're in that imposter, because it's like, it's, it's a stage you're going to go through. Like the first thing is to remember, remember that you got the job and give yourself the job first. Right. And you feel good about that. And then that'll help you not second guess. And you'll, you'll probably, all the things that come to you instinctively will, will work properly instead of second guessing things you normally would never second guess. Sure. Right. Because once your self-talk gets in there, like all of a sudden now it's like, it's like a regulator. Like they're just, they're looking at every transaction all of a sudden, every synapse that's firing. I mean, meanwhile, usually you just let it go. Yeah. Um, but then the other, the other important thing is to sit down with your leaders and other folks and just ask a hell of a lot of questions, right? Because especially if you're going in the same job and they promoted you into a new role, okay. they know all about you. Like they, it's not going to be a surprise that they're not going to wake up one day and be like, wow, I just really know you didn't manage people. That's, yeah. that's weird. Right? They will know. Wait, when did you get here? <laughs> yeah. And so they should ask, like, you know, asking questions is the sign of, of intelligence, typically. Mm -hmm. um, I am significantly more concerned with people that don't ask questions than people who do. Right. Depending on the nature of the question. Fair enough. But for the most part. <laughs> um, and the thing that helped me through that, this is more like more situational, but in the transition between working for Fortune 500 to going back to, to going to startup. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know your boss has circulated this as well at some point, but there's a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things okay. by Ben Horowitz. I have not read that yet. It's the best book on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. It's a very the hard thing, the hard about, thing about, hard about hard things. About hard things. Yeah. Okay. So Ben Horowitz has started and sold a number of different companies, and he's the Horowitz and Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most successful venture capital firms in the Valley. He and Mark Andreessen worked together. Andreessen started the Mosaic browser, which became Netscape. And I mean, these are, these are very big brains and very, very successful people. And Horowitz's book is amazing because it's extremely expository about the struggles he had as a startup founder okay. as he's gone through different companies. And then his company was acquired by HP. And it's very much like it's like stories from the front, like and very specific. But he also has a ton of management and knowledge in that book. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, recommendations around things like hiring an executive and firing an executive and why it doesn't work when you hire a big company executive too early in your company. And, you know, reading that really, A, was like a manual for how not to get fired as I went to work for a startup. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I could better do this stuff. There you go. But some of it was also just like very practical leadership experience. And you don't have to be a CEO to to read that book and glean a lot of insight from it. Sure. Um, and I think, and, and it just happened because of the timing of a lot of his, his experiences is a bit of a nice history lesson on the early days of uh, the internet, enterprise technology, SaaS. And so that's got kind of a nice kind of a little bit of a history background as well. Yeah, for sure. I can see how that would be really interesting to read. Yeah. Fascinating book. It's uh, it's it's not safe for work from a language perspective. I do have to point that out. Oh, neither so, is my boss yet. He's still here. <laughs> well, so, uh, you have to be sensitive to uh, some of the language in the book because it's pretty it's pretty clear. He does have a section actually on why profanity at work is is acceptable. So, there you go. So it may not be sanctioned by all HR organizations everywhere, but right. um, it's a really great read and it's uh, it's unbelievably valuable from an insight perspective. Sure. Well, I'm for sure gonna give it a read now. Um, so a couple other questions, and then we can get you back to the rest of your life, which sure. is work and getting checked in the hotel, finally, yeah. this finally. late in the evening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was thinking about, and it was something that I really had a transition when I went from my startup to come here. So you went from Fortune 500 to a startup, then kind of another startup, obviously, but then finally back to yep. Fortune 500. Talk me through your adjustment period of going to such a fast-paced environment, <clears throat> and then back maybe this way to a larger kind yeah. of like as we said, it's harder to start, it's harder to turn yeah. cruise ship that you're now running. Well, again, like Horowitz actually mentions this in his book, and I've taken this as like a key principle for me, and I've expounded upon it. Okay. And 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 someday when I write my book, uh, which will be long from now because you need free time to write books. <laughs> True. Um, or a ghostwriter. Or a ghostwriter, is it is a in my opinion. It is a complete and total misnomer to assume that startups work faster or, or harder than big companies do. Okay. Um, in a big company, it's like moving a, a very, very large enterprise, right? So you've got lots of moving pieces and all kinds of other things. And you're, especially as you become more senior in your career and you start to, you just start to work cross-functionally among, amongst a bunch of things. And you will find that your calendar is not yours. It belongs to everybody else mm-hmm. and it belongs to your team and it belongs to everybody. And so what you'll find is that the constraints on your time in a big company are tremendous. Sure. Um, and the, the hours of activity that are created by other people for you far outpace the ones you create for yourself. So then it's about time management, carving out time to think, figuring out when you can do the things that are needed to be done and everything else like that. But if anyone were to tell me that people work harder in startups than they do in big companies... I would suggest that maybe they're just not at the right place in the org chart yet. Okay. Or their startup is a very, very hyper growth, fast moving company where they really are, they're, they're employed for a reason. And that reason is because they were, they're, they're going to work you 18 hours a day until you burn out and then they're going to go get somebody else. Yeah. Fair. Um, and then the other challenge with that relative to my calendar comment, you know, especially as an executive, you walk in on day one of a startup, you open your calendar, it is completely empty. And, and one of your biggest responsibilities is to fill it. Okay. So the first thing you get to do is you get to fill that calendar, however you like, with art, with ideally, if you're good at your job, high value, you know, impactful activity, 80-20. Yep. Because nobody, nobody really actually does that 100%. So 80-20 rule, you know, staff meetings don't count. A couple of other things don't count probably. Um Early, early days, you spend a lot of time learning and walking around and doing yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, everybody, but, getting all of that. But there is a threshold, which in startups is, is probably 30 days. In bigger companies, you might get a little longer rope where you're going to have to start adding value. And the benefit is that you can control your calendar to the degree that you can spend your time on things that add value, right? But the startup's expectation is faster because the startup, every day that startup is in business, they're running out of cash. Yes. And so your job is to figure out ways to not be a strain on cash burn. And if you're an executive, you're an expensive resource, you're contributing to burn and you should figure out ways not to do that as fast as possible by asking lots of questions and creating your own activity. In big companies, you're pushed and pulled in a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an interruption driven schedule, Yeah. right? And so baking three hours to go sit at a whiteboard and try and solve a problem, like unless it's Saturday or Sunday, you're not going to get the time. Sure. Um, and so over time, as you gain experience, it, you, all you're really doing is playing probabilities and shaving off 
the edges on some of this stuff because you've seen this movie before, you've done that before, you understand how this works, da 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 And then the experience kind of compounds upon itself. But those two things are really, really dynamically different. Um, and then it depends on your role within the company too. Like sure. if you're in a startup, by the way, if you're an engineer and you're in a startup and they put you on a, on a team, um, you know, there's a pretty decent structure around that, a clear def- definition of what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to figure out ways to contribute quickly. And usually you have to earn your stripes before you can then start, you know, in a sprint review or in sprint planning and say, Hey, I think we should do this. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's that. And that's what I love about startups. Like you can't friggin' hide in startup. Nope. Like there's zero hiding. There's none of this like, well, I manage a thing and a process and then that, like, like what is nothing. it you say you do here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's basically it. And then startups, like you're always going to be held like, for in good ones. You're going to be held accountable for the performance yep. and there's nowhere to hide. No. And, and everybody knows who the high performers are and everybody knows who isn't. And yeah. it's very interesting how it's like that. Um, so a couple, like a, two more questions sure. and then we'll let you go. So one I want to talk about, which is you mentioned time management yep. and as an executive, I can imagine how it's even very important for you to manage that time for all the reasons you just suggested, yep. suggested as a person early in their career, not, not necessarily a lot of interruption driven job. It is more kind of just cranking out spreadsheets or, you know, working SQL, whatever it may be in any profession. How does one manage their time well from a corporation's perspective and your job's perspective, but also how do they apply those skills to their life? And yeah. for example, a very selfish question I'm asking because yeah. I've piled a lot on my plate as of recently. Just mentioned I started rolling in, in BJJ. Now I host two podcasts on top of this. I teach one night a week at a college here in town. Great. So I'm doing all of that and I am, I think I'm fairly good at managing my time, but I would love to hear some additional strategies as well as I think some people listen to this. Yeah. Uh, so to suggest that one should be good at managing one's time, it's not <laughs> to suggest that I'm particularly good at managing my time. So let me, let me point that out. Fair and, enough. And certainly with, you know, a, you know, usually being out of the house four or five days a week that it, I, my, my time management is, is a lot simpler. Okay. Like if I live in a hotel four nights a week, like do do that or watch ESPN. Yeah. Right. So, um, that actually makes it a lot easier. Uh, if I were home taking kids to soccer and doing all those other things, those, those constraints on your time are real. Yeah. And then it's about making sure that you can kind of say, I'm spending 80% of my time on the top five most important things to me and the company and my job. Mm -hmm. Um, in your, in your life, the time management bit is really just doing things that give you energy. Like whatever really, whatever feeds a lot of energy for you and the things that you enjoy doing, like it never, it's never going to feel like work. And if you, it's kind of like working out, like you can, even if you're really tired, you get off a long flight or something like that. And if you can just muster the, the, like just muster the energy to get your shoes on and go for a run or do something like that. Mm-hmm. Five, the first five minutes suck. Oh yeah. And you're just thinking of all the reasons why you don't need to do this. Sometimes the first 30 suck. Yeah. Sometimes the first 30 <laughs> suck too. Yeah. And you're just like, like I'm not being chased by a bear. Like there's no reason for me to be doing this, yep. but eventually you kind of hit the, you fall into your rhythm. And by the time you're done, all the endorphins are firing and you feel great. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're spending your time in your evenings or, or other things uh, in your life, just try and do the things that give you energy. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, like, let's be honest, like you just, sometimes you can't, sometimes you're caring for a sick parent or a sick t- a child, or there's a, something else that's happening in your personal life or whatever that's robbing you of energy. Mm-hmm. And then on the time management front, it's just trying to figure out, like, what can I do that's an outlet for positive energy? Um, and I was, I've always been lucky enough to have work be that positive outlet. And so that in and of itself is a positive feedback loop. It's a big flywheel. Because if I can come to the office and have some of those other problems kind of flushed away and I feel like I can contribute and, you know, I'm doing good work or I'm solving hard problems or whatever else it is, like yeah. that, that, that. And then you can kind of skate from a time management perspective, try and focus your energy on that kind of stuff. And almost take that positive feedback that you get from your positive feedback loop, back loop, whatever that may be, and into those maybe more negative problems and hopefully help drive yep. those um, away or whatever it may be, because life always happens. And that's one thing we can't get away from. That's exactly it. And, that, and so it is important to note, like sometimes, sometimes, honestly, sometimes you just got to take the L. Yeah. Right. Like some days the, the, the universe is not handing you a W today, right? But it's a long season. Yep. You just got to take the L. And then like shut it down, start it again tomorrow, try and figure out opportunities for positivity the next day. And just like, don't wallow in the, in the L and, you know, um, kind of sit in your misery. Uh, unless like, cause I have a bit of a bizarre thing. I get some of my energy from that whole thing. It helps feed my, 
I've had a bit of an aggressive side in some cases. So if I can like harness that, but really, really, I end up turning that into more positive energy over time. But well, sometimes, you, sometimes, like sometimes, it sucks, and you just gotta take the out. I mean, for example, like I was at jujitsu before this. I got choked out four times. Like I wasn't happy about that. Yeah. Like nobody likes that. Yeah. Like my throat still hurts. Yeah, you did not win jujitsu. I did not win. I took no. the out. But I'm gonna go back tomorrow, and That's I'm gonna right. try to do better. And you know, take all the things you learned from whatever mistakes you made and try to hopefully um, not make them again. I think that's interesting. and something I think everybody needs to be reminded of because sometimes you can get a negative feedback loop and sometimes maybe hearing this or even just thinking it yourself will, will knock you out of there, at least get you on the right track. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, because um, I and I, the sports analogies are crude, but I like them anyway. Um, if you look at Bill Parcells, one of the greatest coaches in NFL history, if you actually look at his playoff record, he's like a 65% win record, maybe. Okay. Um, you know, the Bill Belichick's of the world have a very, very strong winning record, but they're absolute statistical anomalies. Some of the greatest coaches in the world have, have almost mediocre records in the playoffs. Because guess what? It's really freaking hard to win a Super Bowl. Yes. Right. Um, if you look at the spread between the golfers that finish at the hundred, like at the hundred mark versus those that win the Delta and then in the difference in shots can be as small as five or six per round. Correct. Like. There's, there isn't, it isn't a massive gap between winners and losers, but it is just the people that are consistently just a little bit better in at all the aspects of the game that end up being successful. Mm-hmm. And life is like that too. Like nobody's walking around with a 90% win record. And if they are, they're not trying anything. So like, great. You have a 90% win record because you literally played 10 times and you won nine out of 10. And the rest of us are playing at a thousand. Yeah. Like you can't care that, that win record doesn't scale. And so getting, I feel, I find people get really wrapped up in this idea, you know, coming out of college or whatever, you're a 4.0 GPA or you're always been successful. You never got a B on an exam in your life. Like, congratulations. Life is friggin' B's. Like, normalized against a long enough timeline, we're all going to scatter graph around, you know, B, B plus. And so, you know, lamenting too much of this stuff too early on is not good for your mental health. And it's a, it's a very long game that you're playing. As long as you can gain some learning from the things you didn't do well, then, you know, I think that that's okay. I just feel like, you know, in many cases, we're like overly encouraging people to achieve as though somehow uh, batting a thousand over 30 years is actually a thing that happens. Right. right? He, and, and a lot of people who are winning 90% of the time aren't even getting out of their comfort zone. Or they're doing yeah. the one thing that they know they're 100% good at. And that's not good for your personal development either. Yeah, well, that, that all depends. I mean, we're, we're assuming a certain amount of ambition that some people just don't have. Sure. Right? And I, I've come to, over over the course of my many years on the planet, I've come to got, sort of realize that sometimes that's okay. Like, some people have ambition for things that are not work-related entirely. And that's, in some cases, incredibly well-adjusted. Yeah. Right? If people are more passionate about their family and would rather take a job where they can guaranteed 40 hours a week, and they're willing to say, I'm willing to earn this much to do that because that means I get to spend this much time with my kids every night or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that equation, as long as you're comfortable with that equation, that's a really great decision. It all just comes back to being self-aware, really, yeah. as understanding what you want. Because yeah. that's then you set yourself up to get to those things that you want. Yeah. And what you, by the way, what you want is going to change over time as true. well. Right. And that's so, um, like, I just... And I, and I think this is what makes good strategists is the same thing that makes good defensive backs, which is very, very short memories in some cases. Okay. And so you go through a bunch of iterations, you do a bunch of work, you know, you sort of show up with the, the layer cakes all baked and ready to go. And yeah. this beautiful masterpiece of a, whatever it is, slide deck, positioning paper, whatever. And then someone goes, oh, it sucks for these three reasons. And you go, oh, wow, that's really good feedback. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh. You gotta go back to the drawing. Thanks board. for the like, feedback. Thanks a lot. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I think you mentioned you didn't like chocolate cake. I forgot about that. Yep. And so, you know, and, and you just you just have to f- kind of figure out like what you learn from those experiences and just move on. And yeah, I mean, that's the most important thing is learning from those. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. This is one we ask all of our guests. Okay. Um, so, and I think I'm interested to hear the answer. So we talk about, especially right now with millennial generation Gen Z. Um, a lot of the tech companies don't necessarily give a shit if you went to college or not. Maybe they're looking for somebody actually who didn't even go to college. Yep. So one thing we've been asking people of all ages in our guests, do you regret going to college? No. And so oh, why? Sorry. Okay. No, why? Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. No, why? No, God, no. Um, it's like, so I met my wife in college. Okay. So, 
I should probably mention that in the <laughs> unbelievably unlikely event she listens to this, even if I said it to her. Um, so there is that. So I can't possibly regret that. I, I left home uh, and I traveled 1,200 miles to a place I'd never been to go to college in a part of the country that had a very different culture and different approach. That was a phenomenal learning experience. So I don't regret that at all. Um, I really loved the city I was in, played lots of sports, had a great time, met tons of great people. Um, and then I kind of closed the book on that part of my life because it was a small town and I, I'm a big city guy. And so I went and I decided to find a big city and I go do some other stuff. Um, and the, the lessons I've learned, like some of the stuff that I read in college, I still, like I still go back and read or um, I don't, I would never suggest that it made me worse. Okay. Um, but it was also something I really wanted to do. I just wanted to leave home and like kind of go venture out into the world. Yeah. And, you know, you get punched in the face once in a while when that happens too. So it wasn't, again, you, every once in a while you're going to catch an L. That's okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, learned, to, learned a lot about the value of the dollar on student loans and, you know, 20 bucks a week and drinking money and all that other good stuff, right? Yeah. Like none of this, you know, daddy wasn't writing big checks and doing all that kind of stuff. And so there's a certain amount of empowerment and self-fulfillment with that. Um, but then I didn't really come into my own until after I finished college and sort of hit the workforce and then decided what I wanted to do for a living, which, uh, which took, and it was really more esoteric. Like I would like to be this, this sort of image that I had for myself, not, I want a job that does that. Got it. Um, that was it. And so I don't regret going to college at all, but for those types of reasons, not because I felt like my degree helped me or. There are lots of employers that insist on having a college degree still. So if you're comfortable not working for them because you don't have one, then great. Yeah. Um, tech companies are recruiting just like really brilliant kids that are going to, if they went to college, would crush it. Right. So um, the benefit there is, and I have, I used to, I worked as head of engineering at my last company. It was an absolute genius. Like, I think he got a job at Advanced Microdynamics you know, building silicon chips when he was 16 or 17. Like he was like a complete, like wow. a total genius. Um, and he believe, he firmly believes that the best engineers are best are the ones that are the best communicators. Okay. It's not something that they teach at all in engineering school. Yeah. And interestingly, they're finding people with really creative backgrounds that can go now and you can do a 16 or 18 week boot camp and learn Python or learn Ruby on Rails or whatever. Sure. And they're bringing in these different perspectives into what is usually a very static way of learning. Mm-hmm. And that's what these startups like because they need people that can help break paradigms and solve hard problems. And in many cases, they just lock these guys in a room or people in a room. I shouldn't say guys at all. People in a room and say, here's a really thorny problem. None of us have a clue how to fix this. All you smart people in here are just going to figure it out. And then they, I mean, that's where you get the, the, the I've lived on Mountain Dew for three straight days thing. Yep. Not because they were asked to, but because there's a passion for that problem solving. Right. Right. And you, I don't, they're not going to teach you that in college. They're going to teach you how to be afraid to turn your assignment in late. But they're not necessarily going to teach you to stay up for three straight days because you have a passion for solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but colleges do provide you with an opportunity to test that out sure right so i don't know that's a bit of a wishy-washy answer but you asked me what, what my personal experience was that's i, I yeah, love going to college it. yeah i really enjoyed the experience i learned a lot i learned a lot about what i wanted to do what i what i didn't want to do sure um i have lots of regrets about taking a history degree right you know, do you I, oh, i don't know you're you're very successful even i know so it's tough to it's tough to figure out but um like i was such a friggin <laughs> what did you think you were going to do altruistic like passion for learning and i had like a really just pig-headed view of the world but <laughs> so stupid and i mean meanwhile I, I luckily my passion for history translated into a passion for economics and a passion for business history and that's how i ended up kind of have with the worldview that i have today because i always felt like specifically history but history and political science what i studied i got my degree in history because i was one credit short on poli sci read by both okay um but both of them are very, like, very, very interrelated, interspurs. Mm-hmm. But there is almost always an economic element to it that's overlooked. Mm-hmm. So whether you're talking about like the you know origin and causes of some foreign war or anything else like that, economics plays a role in virtually all human behavior to some degree or another. And I felt like the humanities kind of missed the role economics plays in 
starting wars and funding wars and funding Western expansion and building canals and roads and bridges and all the things that make us the thing that we are today. Right. So that's sort of where I had this like passion for learning that deviated off the path. And, but I was just like a pig headed idiot. And I would go and like write a paper about economic history when the, the assignment was not that. And I would hand it in and be like, yeah, but this is really important. And the professor would be like, are you kidding me? That's all I used to do. <laughs> the assignment is Huckleberry Finn. Why did you write this paper on the, or- the origins and causes of the Great Depression? I'm like, because of the relationship between the post-Civil War South. And they just look at me like, what's wrong with you? Right? So I probably could have done that better. That's um, probably fair, yeah. Uh, you got out there with a degree that's out of it with a degree that I did <laughs> eventually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think they gave it to me just to make me leave. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Torturing all the professors, you got to go. Oh, man. Professors. Uh, yeah, tortured enough of them in my day. Um, okay. Yeah. That was um, that was kind of what I was actually. I mean, I could talk to here and talk for hours, so, and I don't want to keep you, but I is there anything that. else um, you, maybe you want to touch on that you had an idea of thinking coming into this? I want to talk about this that I didn't get lead you to or ask you about. Um, uh, maybe one, just because yeah. of like the title of your podcast and everything. Sure. Is that they always ask, typically ask people like me what we think of millennials or Gen Z or whatever we're and, called yes. now. Mm-hmm. First thing I would remind you is that people of my vintage still believe that we're young at heart. Okay. Right? Yep. We just don't look it. Mm-hmm. The packaging is faded, but the, the passion is still the same. Okay. Um, but I, I am positive if you dug up a New York Times editorial from 1857, there would be someone who had written the young people today don't know X, Y, Z, haven't done that, this, this, and like mm-hmm. constantly complaining because that's just what people of one generation sometimes do for the younger generation. Yes. And so I, I really just, I struggle with those though, even just the categorization Gen Z and Gen Y and all those other things, because yeah. we're all a collection of our collective experiences and some people have different experiences than others. Okay. So age cohorts is an interesting and potentially statistically significant indicator of certain behavior, but not a determinant of behavior. Got it. Um, and I'm positive that this is like an age old thing, but we didn't have podcasts in 1850 to talk about it. Well, you can see in every articles where, uh, I guess I'm glad we're talking about this because it, it is an interesting topic, I think, to think about. Um, and it's like Gen X was looked at the same way millennials were just in the opposite manner. Well, they were lazy. They didn't want to do anything. They yeah. weren't corporate. They weren't their baby boomer, you know, parent generation. Um, and and that all, they just kind of leaned in heavily. And obviously you got like grunge music and they rebelled heavily against the um, corporate world. And I know. That, that was but my era. The same thing happened yeah. in the 60s too. So yep. like this is kind of just a repeat of history. And I think you're just seeing it different ways as tech gets more and more involved in our lives. Um, I think sometimes that also uh, increases the disparage between the age gaps and can make it very obvious when you are correct. It does not mean that all things that apply to millennials don't apply to baby boomers sure. and vice versa. Yeah. But I, you could take that back to Gutenberg and talk about the printing press pre and post and what it did to different generations. You yeah. could probably talk about, I don't know, the, the cotton gym, steam engines, like whatever else it is. I mean, sure. if you're riding horse to try and get across the country and then the generation below you is sitting on a steam-powered engine hurtling, relatively speaking, yes. across the landscape, that's a massive change. Mm-hmm. The difference between in generations between having a telephone and not having a telephone. Yeah. The impact of the post-Second World War baby boom on the creation of the suburbs, which then created the need for the, the mass transit systems, interstate highways, cars. Like You could go back as far as you like. I think the rate and pace of change now is such that the if in the past it was really about industrial production, yeah, like cars and roads and like things that are heavy and big and expensive to produce and require national effort to get done. Yes. Now it's like software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. Software is, you know, for 5,000 bucks, you can basically get an infinitely scalable infrastructure on AWS. You can go out and get open source libraries, do just about anything. You can get and, a free Salesforce work if you want. Yeah. You can develop something there. With, without question. Yeah. Right. And so the, the means of production, cost of production has gone down dramatically. The access to the, to the tools is, is universal, mm-hmm. right? Which, by the way, makes the global market more competitive, which is mm-hmm. good and bad for, for people sitting in a desk somewhere. Um, but also, you add those factors together, um, and you get just sort of this, uh, this thing where, where data is probably the most important currency now all of a sudden. Yes. And access to information is the most important thing. Um, and young people have an information advantage as a consequence of technology the way other people just didn't. Like when I used to write a paper in, in college, 
I'm not that old, but this is the advent of the internet was still ICQ. And, yeah. you know, there was, uh, I think my, my freshman year is when the Mosaic browser launched or Netscape launched. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mosaic browser launched in like 94. Um, so I went to the library, grabbed the whack of books, stacked them on a desk and then like bang through them to try and write an essay. Right. And I would usually write it out in longhand and then I would go to the computer lab and type it up. Okay. Right. Yep. And that's how everybody did work. Yeah. Now, theoretically, you have access to a lot more of a streamlined information kind of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I think the expectations have also shifted because you have access to that. Then I expect a different work product. than if I made you read three 300 page books and sift through them for great quotes and insight and all sorts of other things. Yeah. So so to me, it's the. It, like technology will always have a, a force multiplier effect. And if it sits, if you sit in between generations, it has like a massive impact mm-hmm. versus if you're, I think my generation personally, I think we were in like in the seam, right? So I, I started college and the internet was becoming a thing. Yes. Uh-huh. When I left, it was definitely a thing. Um, but the mass consumption of the internet and mobile hadn't happened yet. And right. so I kind of got to live through a bunch of these big technological revolutions. Yeah, And because they're so compressed now, my step function, my step change is significantly easier than if it was like a 40 year product or technology cycle the way it used to be. For sure. And I think that changes a lot of things too. You know, one thing I think that gets associated with my generation so much is this fact of being an entitled generation. And I think, and I, you have, you do not have to comment on this, but I found myself kind of feeling that way, but not because I actually felt like I was entitled, but I think it's because everything happens so fast now where in corporate world especially things aren't like that like getting whether it's promotion or getting tapped to do new projects or stuff like that um it's not just the hey you've been here six months boom you're done it's maybe two years and that's kind of just that time frame and it's almost just relearning you know the different culture that you're in the different scenario that you're in or whatever it may be and not focusing on i bought a light bulb on amazon and my apartment when i get home yeah, or I posted a photo and I got a thousand likes. Yeah, because um, a month from now I'm getting none. Yes, on that same photo, right? People have already done and dusted. Uh, the 24-hour news cycle started while I was in high school, probably, uh, and now we're in a just an infinite stream. Like it's a fire hose of information all the time, and so like it, I think it plays with people's understanding of the passing of time, mm-hmm. um, and there's an immediacy to all of that. Yeah. and I don't even remotely think for a second that that affects only one generation and not others. Right. Like we all have that expectation of immediacy now. And every conference you go to, when they talk about the impacts of technology on the consumer or anything else like that, like Amazon's in the top three things they talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Probably Apple, Google, and Amazon or some combination thereof. Um, and, and they've created these perceptions where like things are just available immediately no matter what. But that doesn't work everywhere. And it's not, not everything moves at the same rate and pace. And so people just need to be patient. And sometimes the real challenge is when you start talking about demographic issues. Mm -hmm. So experience is the most important one, right? Experience is somewhat linear and it is very highly correlated to time. Yes. And there's very, you can, you can gain a lot of experience in a short period of time. um, But that's not the norm. And that may or may not scale either. Right. So I think that that's where you get this, 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 I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. around entitlement because I feel like I don't believe entitlement is a generational um, trait necessarily. Yeah. I, f- I feel like every generation has a certain, it's probably likely more of like a percentage of population thing than anything else. Yeah. Or be, but, or things being construed as entitlement that maybe not be because it's probably just the best describer of the word. Sure. I also think we don't have a uniform definition of entitlement. Either. Yeah, exactly. Like, so for me, it's, it's, um, the trickiest part as a, as a leader is around the idea that experience is just difficult to get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And what worked in the past may or may not work in the future. But if it worked for you 10 times in the past, there's a higher correlation to it working an 11th time. But it's not a 100% correlated thing. Sure. So that's where you get the gaps where people are just like, oh, we've done this before. And then you get a lot of that is either explaining why you can't do something or why you should do something. Yes. But we've always done it that way. We've always done it that way. So That's my least favorite answer in the world to any question. <laughs> well, it depends on what the question is, right? Like some things are, I don't know, 
why is sliced bread the way sliced bread is? Well, we've always done it that way. Well, it works well. It fits in my toaster. <laughs> Fair like, enough. Right. You know? <laughs> we built things around that slice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's is exactly it. Right. Mm-hmm. And some things are like perfectly engineered for their environment. That's true. You or know? the need of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. So alligators haven't really evolved in like a hundred million years because they're perfectly suited for their environment. Right. They don't actually need to evolve anymore. Sure. But they still need to eat every day and they still get a little smarter and they still build whatever life lessons alligators build. I don't know what it Maybe is. they're evolving by the water and we can't even see it. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was a great conversation. Um, I appreciate you coming on once again. I, uh, this has been wonderful eye-opening for me. I have a couple of takeaways, so I hope people at home do. Um, anything you want to just leave the people with that are listening yep. um, that they can take to work, to life, anywhere? Uh, uh... <laughs> but I don't know why anyone would listen to my advice anyway <laughs> but just uh, I don't know work hard try and have fun um, don't take yourself too seriously but be serious when it matters okay. um, I don't know find opportunities to do do stuff that provides balance in your life right mm-hmm. like um, you know find a partner or a hobby or something else that that kind of challenges you and gets you out of your comfort zone, but doesn't necessarily correlate directly to your life ambitions or whatever's on your vision wall, right? right? Like do things that scare you and be risky and try and have fun. And don't take the L's too seriously. Not too seriously. No, no. I mean, but you learn from them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. That was great. Um, thanks again uh, for all of you listening. I appreciate it. If you're listening, you already know where to find us. So tell other people where to find us. That's what will help us grow. That's what will help us get bigger. Um, big news did get dropped. Uh, I have a, none of it on our social. So if you're listening to this, you're probably the first to hear it. Uh, in November 14th, there will be a live podcast in downtown Milwaukee that we would love everybody to come to. Um, it will be going on for two hours. So two hours of Eric and I talking. It may be a lot, but hopefully we'll break it up. And we'll have some awesome guests to talk over us. So once again, we appreciate listening. Tell your friends about us. Uh, If you're listening on iTunes, hit that like button, uh, hit that subscribe button and rate us. Give us a one star. If you think this is a one star podcast, let us know why so we can fix it. Uh, Hope you're having a great day and we will see you next episode. Cheers.